On February 23rd, in the year 156 AD, an old man was taken into the stadium in the city of Smyrna and tied to a stake. The Roman governor of that area, a man named Statius Quadratus, had decided to crack down on the local Christians for their refusal to offer incense to Caesar as Lord. And he also decided he was going to start at the top by seizing the Bishop of Smyrna, a man called Polycarp. Polycarp had been raised in the Christian faith as a young man. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation. And when this crackdown became apparent, his friends urged him to flee the city and escape. And he had actually spent the previous night outside of the city in a, a rural farmhouse. But somehow the Lord appeared to him in a vision or a dream, and Polycarp became convinced that he had to go back and face whatever was going to happen there. Statius Quadratus urged him to offer the incense. It's a small thing. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's just a gesture. Say that Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp replied, For 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. But what are you waiting for? Do what you will. We know those words because they were written uh, within a year of Polycarp's martyrdom by the church in Smyrna in a letter that they sent out to other churches. And that letter concludes this way. Later, we gathered up his bones more precious than jewels and finer than gold, and laid them where appropriate. There, if possible, we will assemble in gladness and joy to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom, both in memory of those who have already contended and for the training of those who will do so. Such is the account of the blessed Polycarp, including those from Philadelphia, he was the 12th martyr in Smyrna. From the martyrdom of Polycarp. So today we come to the second of the seven letters of the book of Revelation, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And as John has pointed out, these letters all follow a basic pattern, beginning with the address, and it seems as though the order of the letters was probably determined not because of their content or their importance, they're not ranked one to seven somehow, but by geography. Starting in Ephesus, which was the chief church of that whole district, the church where John himself was the leader, uh, a messenger carrying these letters would have moved north and the first place he would have come to would have been the city of Smyrna, uh, as it was known then. Today in Turkey, still a major important city called Izmir. And uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna, like all the other letters, is addressed to the angel of the church. As John pointed out last week, that could mean uh, angel as we 
usually think of angel, a, a spiritual being, some kind of guardian angel, but it's difficult to see why a letter from Jesus would be written uh, to a, a, a heavenly angel. And so it's much more likely that we are to understand the word angel as messenger or pastor, the pastor and teacher of each church, which I find interesting in and of itself. Because what it says is that Jesus, who's addressing the church, we're calling this series Dear Church, we're hearing from Jesus, not just about him, but from him, but he's addressing each message to each church through its pastor. So the words come to the pastor, and as the pastor faithfully delivers them, it's Jesus himself speaking to the church. Think about that the next time you're listening to a sermon. You're not just listening to John Sherrill and evaluating whether you agree or disagree. As he faithfully expounds the word of God, it is God himself who is speaking. The Lord Jesus addressing his church. So dear church, dear church in Smyrna, here's what's coming. Uh, the sender is then described after the address. So the pattern of each letter is address, sender, message, uh, encouragement or command, and finally promise at the end. So I want to work through each of those in order, and we come then to the sender, who's Jesus in every case, but who's Jesus described slightly differently in each letter, using terminology drawn from the great vision that John had in chapter 1, as we saw in the first uh, sermon of this series. So, uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. And that actually harks back to a couple of verses in chapter 1, because it's uh, an echo of what John says of God himself, God the Father, in chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The first and last, in other words, the A and the Z, uh, the beginning and the end. I, I'm everything and everything in between. And now we're told that Jesus is also the first and last. As he says in the vision in, in chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then he adds, And the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So Jesus, and Revelation can't make this point often enough, in fact, the whole New Testament, Everything that God is, Jesus is. God is the Alpha and the Omega, so is Jesus. God is the first and the last, so is Jesus. But where in chapter 1, what's added of God is who was and is and is to come. In other words, it's a take on the divine name, Yahweh, I am who I am, the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I will be what I will be. He was and is and is to come, eternally the same, ever constant, unchanging, steadfast in his holiness and love and justice and power. With Jesus, there's a variant. He is 
the one who died and came to life, who was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore. So Jesus, while he's identical with God, as God in his eternal nature, is different from God in that he is the incarnate one who became flesh, who came down for us and for our salvation, who died for our sins and was raised again to defeat death, who died and is alive now forevermore. And he it is who addresses the church with these words. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who speak against you. Now, in almost every other letter, the message from the Lord Jesus begins with the phrase, I know your works. I know all about it. I'm here. I see you. I'm with you. But for Smyrna, it's, it's a variation. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander that's directed against you. Nothing about their works. No word of, uh, of rebuke or criticism is offered to this church. Just this rather stark, kind of painful message. This is what's happening, and this is what's going to happen to you. And what's going to happen is tribulation. That's the key word in this letter, thlipsis in Greek. It occurs twice. It's all about tribulation. That's what the church has promised. You think about the gospel and the, the unblushing promises of reward uh, that fill the New Testament. What are we promised uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. We're promised new life. We're promised forgiveness. We're promised resurrection spiritually now, physically later. We're promised the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We're promised peace with God and with one another, reconciliation. We're promised strength for the journey and glory at the end of the way. And along the way, suffering tribulation. We're not promised wealth or health or a trouble-free, pain-free life. And anyone who says we are is a false teacher. Run away from that. We are promised tribulation. And as we unpack the message of the, the letter to Smyrna, we're told a number of things about it that are crucially important, I think, for us to understand. Beginning with the nature of this suffering, or thlipsis, uh, or tribulation. This is not simply ordinary human suffering, the sorrows and pains of life in what... Uh, older generations called this veil of tears because those things are common to all human beings. It's true, uh, the pandemic 
and the unrest in our society and the tension in political opposition, these are all things that can test our faith. They're forms of suffering, but they are not specifically Christian suffering because they're universal to everyone. The suffering that is addressed here in this letter is suffering for the sake of Jesus and only for the sake of Jesus. It's suffering that is unique to us as followers of Jesus, suffering for the sake of the name, the New Testament calls it. And the way you can tell whether suffering is specifically Christian or not is by asking a simple question, can you avoid it? Because if you, if you can avoid it, just by being quiet, by not revealing your true allegiance, by offering that pinch of incense to Caesar, when it's called for by saying, oh, I don't really believe this, but I'm gonna go along with it because it's the majority view, it's patriotic. If you can avoid it, then it is Christian suffering for the sake of Jesus. Betty Jo and I, uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, when you do get together with someone or maybe you talk to them virtually, uh, you tend to trade uh, what you've been binge watching on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever the case may be. And one of the shows that Betty Jo and I have gotten into is called Alone. It's uh, a fascinating program about a, a group of people who are given simple rudimentary survival equipment and then they're dumped all by themselves into a harsh wilderness setting to see how long they can survive. And each one of them is given a device with a button on it that they only have to push in order to be rescued. So psychologically, as time goes on and they grow hungry and they grow tired and they get lonely and they miss their friends and their family, the pressures mount. All they've got to do is push the button and tap out. And almost instantly, a rescue team will arrive and whisk them away to food and and uh, comfort and uh, home. And it's stressful. That's the nature of the suffering we face as, as Christians. All we have to do is tap out. All we have to do is hide our identity in the face of the world or of society. And we can escape it. So that's the first thing. The second thing are the forms that this suffering will take, this tribulation or trouble. And here Jesus describes three things uh, about it that uh, have proved true for the Smyrnans and in every generation since then. They still prove true today. It may be economic suffering that you endure for the sake of faithfulness to Christ. I know your poverty says Jesus, it wasn't always good for business uh, to be a Christian, nor is it any longer today necessarily good for business. You may be passed over for promotion because of moral integrity or because of your out outward Christian identity, your overt confession of Christ. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, although Jesus says, notice there's a difference between poverty and wealth. These things are not just physical measures. You are you may be physically poor there in Smyrna, but you are spiritually rich. 
It could be physical persecution. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, Jesus says. And it could be social in nature. And here we come to a phrase that I think we need to unpack a little bit. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So the Christians in Smyrna are being slandered. They're being, nasty things are being said about them by people that are described here as so-called Jews who are part of the synagogue of Satan. And that sounds at first blush like it's anti-Semitic. But we have to try to think our way back into a situation very different from subsequent history. And certainly subsequent history, uh, we as Christians have nothing to be proud of uh, with our treatment of the Jewish people and the, the terrible sin of anti-Semitism up to and building up finally into the Holocaust in the 20th century. Uh, we have much to repent of. But at the time of the New Testament, the situation was reversed. It was the Jewish population in these Greco-Roman cities that was numerous and wealthy and had political power. And it were, was the Christians who were small and uh, sort of powerless and unable necessarily to defend themselves and the target of abuse and uh, it's important to remember when it says synagogue of Satan, that doesn't necessarily mean the devil was in control there, but the original meaning of Satan is the accuser. So it's not too hard, I think, to imagine. The situation of these Christians, many of whom would have been Jews originally, who had come to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior and Lord, and now they're getting it from former friends and maybe family members. And this is a pattern, again, that has played out all over. I think of our own Saeed uh, here at Fifth, our beloved brother from Iran and his wife Atanaz. And Saeed actually, in his own experience, has had all three forms of this kind of suffering. He's been physically abused. He's been thrown in jail. He's been beaten. He's lost his job because of uh, being, becoming known as a Christian. He's been kicked out for a time from his home by his family. This is reality for many in the world today, still. And it may be for us. Who knows? You know, <laughs> America's been kind in terms of religious freedom. But who knows what the future may hold? There is, however, one important reminder that we need to throw in at this point from Peter. First Peter uh, probably sheds more light on this letter to the Smyrnans than any other part of the New Testament because it was written explicitly to Christians who were under the gun, who were suffering, and it was written to strengthen them. And in First Peter chapter 2, he adds a very important reminder uh, on this topic of, of persecution. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he cites the example of Christ. The key is, you need to be suffering unjustly. If I were to paraphrase what Peter says there, I'd say... 
don't suffer for being a jerk. <laughs> if you suffer because you did something wrong or stupid or, or downright wicked, there's no credit in that. That's not suffering for your faith. That's suffering for, for that's your own fault. But if we suffer unjustly, if we come down to it and know we have to take a stand at the risk of being unpopular, maybe losing a friend, maybe even experiencing some kind of financial penalty, and perhaps ultimately physically, then we need to step up. So the nature of the suffering, the forms that it takes, and then more briefly, notice the one who's behind it, the instigator. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And again, a reminder that, that John offered as well in the uh, previous message in this series. People, even people who maybe abuse or mistreat us or treat us unfairly in some way because of our faith, they're not the real enemy. The real enemy is behind all that. And the real enemy wants to destroy our witness if he can. He wants to destroy our faith. And maybe he can do that by getting us to cave and to hide, hide our faith, our allegiance to Christ. Or maybe he can get, it, get us to respond inappropriately with anger or hatred or contempt. So recognize what's really going on here, the real spiritual dynamics of this threat. And then finally, Jesus tells us the purpose of it all. Satan, the devil, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. The purpose of it all is, again, to quote from Peter, that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the day of Christ. What Satan intends as a temptation, God allows us to experience as a test. And in that sense, I think we can come to understand the full New Testament uh, feeling and response to this idea of suffering for the sake of Christ. Because the disciples thought it a privilege. There, there's a verse in Acts where after they'd been beaten and uh, warned by the authorities in Jerusalem, the disciples left praising God that they were found worthy to suffer for the name. Worthy to suffer for the name. And Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. As though suffering were a gift to us, like faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that suffering is the badge of the true Christian. So in a sense, it is a gift, for it allows us to think and believe that we really are his. So that's the message. 
Next comes the exhortation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid. I've got this, Jesus says, in effect. I love the, the numbers in the book of Revelation because they're almost all symbolic. We shouldn't uh, worry too much about trying to figure out some arcane secret meaning in the numerology uh, that comes throughout the book, 666 and three and a half years and all the rest. It's just a simple message that Jesus says here. For 10 days, you're going you're gonna to be suffering. About a week and a half, less than two weeks, a little while. It's limited, it's temporary, especially compared to forever. So don't worry, I know, I know all about it. I'm still in control. I measure out how long it's gonna last and I will always be with you, no matter what. Be faithful unto death, faithful unto death. One of the things that occurs in each of the letters is the promise at the end, always given to those who conquer. And here, in the letter to Smyrna, we're given a definition of what it is to conquer. It isn't to, to somehow defeat your enemies, out-argue them, punch them, uh, overcome them with power or force or weaponry. It's simply to be faithful, to hang in there, to keep loving Jesus, to keep following Jesus, no matter what. No matter uh, what we may experience along the way, the one who conquers is the one who's faithful unto death and who receives a crown of life. You notice at the end of the letter, it's all about life and death in their various meanings. There's physical life and physical death. There's also spiritual life and spiritual death. And there's eternal life and eternal death. And the final promise to the one who conquers is that they will not be hurt by the second death. Those are trembling kinds of words because the second death is the death that happens after death. We love to skip ahead to the, book, uh, to the end of the book of Revelation with its depiction of the new heavens and the new earth coming down like a bride adorned for her husband where there's light and no darkness and no sea and no crying and no tears. We're not so keen on chapter 20 that comes just before those two last chapters which describes the last judgment and the second death. But the truth is that just as it is possible to gain eternal life, it's also possible to lose it. It's found in Christ, only in Christ. Having him, we have all. He has offered us not just himself, but the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. And he's given us a reminder of that love that we may not only hear, but see and taste and feel his love for us. So receive him. Take the bread. 
and drink the cup in remembrance of him and be thankful. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the life, death, and resurrection by which you have dealt with our sin, overcome our sorrow and fear, and delivered us into life eternal. We pray for the strength and grace to be faithful to you no matter what, willing to pay any price for the sake of holding up your name and being, adorn an, and being an adornment to it. And we pray in that same name. Amen.